Good morning and welcome Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you join us this morning. You were just reminded that we're in a series called Ready, Set, because preparation always precedes execution. You first have to have a plan. You get your head in gear, make sure you've practiced, and then you execute after you have gotten ready and you are set for the task. Well, we've been kind of getting ready and set by looking at some places in the Bible where prayer is spoken of, because we need to get ready and set individually, but also corporately. And so prayer is one of the ways that we remind ourselves of what God wants, and we bring ourselves into alignment with what God's about, and then we're ready to execute what God brings. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about some dangerous prayers, some dangerous prayers. And my goal is that you're all going to have the courage and the guts to actually pray these things. Now, you may be thinking, um, how is this going to be different? Well, let me explain how it's different. My hunch is that you have all prayed before. One way or another, not out loud, not at church, you probably said a prayer or two before. My guess is most of you have heard a sermon or two on prayer. If you've been coming to Calvary Church for the last few weeks, you've heard a number of sermons on prayer. Maybe some of you have read a book on prayer, and I'd be willing to bet at one point or another, you all have felt guilty because your lack of prayer. Well, we're going to work at removing some of that guilt this morning because we're going to pray. We're going to pray four dangerous prayers, four prayers that are going to take courage and guts in order to do. But in order, we, in order to get to the prayers, we first have to uh, make sure our thinking is in gear. So let's talk a little bit about reflection, thinking, and prayer as we get started. Prayer is really an opportunity for us to reflect and to think. It's not an opportunity or a time to put your mind in neutral and let it wander, even though that often happens. It's to reflect. I was thinking about that uh, this past week and thinking of a passage where Jesus enters the temple and he kind of goes berserk. Jesus loses it at the temple. Here's, uh, here's how Matthew records it. Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Can you just imagine the scene? I mean, people are trying, you know, they're kind of hustling around, getting ready. They're in line to do their little worship deal. Jesus starts turning tables over. Coins are rolling on the ground. He's making a real scene over here. Animals are not just stinking, but they're making noises. And what sets Jesus off? You ever think about that? Why does he get so, at, why does he make a scene in the temple? Well, there are uh, lot, lots of reasons that people give that I kind of think I uh, missed the mark a little bit. Here are a few reasons. Because you shouldn't bring stinking, lousy animals into the temple. Thankfully, you all don't bring your animals, to, especially cats, to the service, and we're grateful for that. No, 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 that can't be right. The worshipers needed to bring an animal because when they gathered for worship, they didn't gather together to hear sermons and sing together. They brought an animal, and they would bring the animal. They kind of wait in line like Chick-fil-A. You're with your little animal, and when you get to the front of the line... You hand your animal over, and the priest then takes the animal. That's what worship was. So they had to bring the animals. Other people say, it's because of those darn coins. The money changers had coins, and the coins had pictures of Herod on them and pictures of Roman emperors. You can't go bringing Roman emperors' pictures into the temple. It never says that. 
It's not like sacrilegious or wrong to bring coins in your pocket. It wasn't wrong for them to do that. Other people say, well, it wasn't, it wasn't those particular things. It's that they were there and the rate of exchange was exorbitant. The money changers are cheating the people. And so here's a person, they bring a lamb on the fair, you know, fair market value of a lamb is 10 bucks. They bring it, but when they're exchanging the rate, the money changers are charging 15 bucks. They're ripping the worshipers off. It doesn't say that. In fact, I would say it wasn't what they were doing that was wrong. It's where they were doing it that was wrong. They had to exchange money and purchase animals. Not everybody, but certainly people that live far away. Suppose you lived in Spain and you're kind of going to make your way to Jerusalem to the temple to worship. Are you going to bring your little lamb all the way from Spain? They're not going to let him on the plane. Or they're not, what you, they can't do that. So what would they do? They would take the lamb in Spain and they would sell the lamb. They would get the money. They would then take the money. They'd go to Jerusalem. They would go to the temple and they would purchase another lamb. So it still is their lamb. They sold it, got the money. Now they're taking the money, buying another lamb. Different lamb, same idea. They had to do that. Well, what's the problem? It's where. You see, you need to be able to think in order to pray well. And Jesus says, you've turned the temple, which should be a place of thinking and reflection, you've turned it into the stock exchange floor where people are buying and screaming and yelling and tra transferring money. And It shouldn't be that way. Here's what should be happening. When you're waiting in line with your little lamb, like Chick-fil-A, and you're making your way forward, Here's what you should be thinking. I'm guilty. That's why I'm here. I screwed up. This little lamb here didn't do anything. I just brought him along with me. But the lamb isn't going to be going home with me. How does this substitution thing work? You see, the whole sacrificial system was kind of a pointer for people to look forward and understand something about the gospel. But in order for the sacrificial system to do its work, helping us move toward the gospel, you've got to have your mind in gear. You've got to be thinking and reflecting and contemplating. You can't be on the stock exchange floor with your attention all over the place, watching these people getting, exchanging money. You can't be doing that. So it's not what they were doing. It's where they were doing it. Jesus says, when you gather together, it should be a time of reflection and thinking and contemplation because that's what's required for prayer. And if you don't have time to do those things, prayer can't be effective because thinking can't happen. Well, this morning, we're going to actually say a few prayers together. You don't even have to say them out loud. You're going to say them to yourself, four dangerous prayers. I'll explain to you what they are. So we're ready to begin with some dangerous prayers, and you'll see kind of there's a sequence to them. They come right from the Bible. Maybe you've prayed them before. Maybe you've never prayed them before, uh, but either way, you're going to pray them this morning. First one, the first prayer is search me, search me. Now, when I say the word search, all of you Bible readers probably immediately think of Psalm 139 as kind of the search me prayer. Here's how Psalm 139 begins. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. 
Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You may be thinking, well, there's not a prayer in there. David's just kind of stating a fact. Lord, you know everything. And that's what it says. Lord, you have searched me. You know all the details. And if you look at some of the stuff he's mentioned that God knows, they're not even like really big things. You know, when I sit down and when I, I mean, do you think much about when you sit down and when you rise up? But he's saying before all that happens, God knows it. Before I form a word on my tongue and spit it out, God knows what I'm going to say and he knows why I'm going to say it. God knows all that stuff. God already knows everything. You can't hide from God. Why try it? God knows everything about you. God knows everything in you and outside. God knows it all. But the prayer doesn't show up until the end of the psalm. Now, with that as kind of a background, God knows everything. He searched everything. Look what David prays at the end. It's kind of amazing. As soon as it comes up, I'll show you. Here it is. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this, but human beings reflexively hide and pretend. We hide and pretend. If you don't believe me, just look at somebody's social media account. Just go on, right? It's nothing but Photoshop and fake stories, right? Because we, we want to manage what other people think about us. We want to hide what we perceive as flaws. We don't want people to know lousy motives we got. So we pretend. We massage. We manage other people's opinions. Now, the beginning of the psalm says God already knows everything. But when you come to the end of the song, David says, search me and know everything about me. God, I'm not hiding. You already, I want you to know what's in my heart what I'm valuing and what I'm loving, my thoughts. I want you to know if there are things that worry me. And I want you to know that I know and I know that you know. I want you to search me and bring them to my attention. Shine the spotlight on all those closets and cabinets of my life, all the nooks and crannies and whatever's in there, I want you to bring it to my attention. I had an example uh, this past week of how I like to hide I need uh, new sunglasses, so I go to get sunglasses, and the person says, uh, you need to get your eyes examined before you get sunglasses. So I just had my eyes examined. He said, yeah, nine years ago you had your eyes examined. <laughs> I thought it was last summer. I don't well, anyway, so I have to get my eyes examined. I go to the eye doctor to get my eyes examined. So he puts all this apparatus in front of my eyes, blows little puffs of air in my eye, got those things, and then he would say, which line can you read? Read the lowest line you can read. Read the letters. It's amazing. I wanted to cheat. <laughs> it's, I, well, as soon as he'd move it, I would try to study the letters, right? And I'm thinking, when he puts that, even though I can't see them, right? I'm going to pretend I know them. And so I put my glasses on him. When he put his back on, he says, can you see that line? Well, not real. He's trying to help me, and I'm pretending. I'm trying to cheat the eye doctor. Because we don't want people to know. Even if they're out to help us, we don't want them to know the truth about us. We don't want them to know our liabilities. We don't want them to know our problems, our lacks. We want to manage what they're thinking. But what does David pray? No managing, God. No pretending. 
I can't do it anyway from the beginning of the psalm. I just want you to know, no pretending. I want you to shine the spotlight into all the nooks and crannies, all the closets and cabinets of my life, and I want you to bring to my attention what you already know. I want you to bring to my attention all the junk that you've dredged up there. Search me. You got the guts to pray? If you ask God to search you, he really will. You ask God to bring to your attention areas of your life that aren't quite squaring with him. Bring your anxious thoughts, the real motives of your heart. If there are any offensive ways in you, if you ask God to do that, he will send his spirit into all those nooks and crannies of your life, and he will begin to bring to your attention a whole bunch of junk. You got the guts? You don't even have to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just keep looking at me. God knows if you're sincere. And in your mind, in your, inside of you, can you just say, uh, search me, search me. You already know. I'm not letting you in on something that's hidden from you. But search me. Bring to my attention the motives of my heart, my anxious thoughts, the offensive ways. Bring them to my attention. Just pray that prayer. Well, it's a good thing I'm not going to close in prayer now. You'd all be living with all that junk floating around in your head. There are other dangerous prayers. The second dangerous prayer follows immediately on that one. The second dangerous prayer is forgive me. Psalm 32 says it like this. Maybe not a clearer place in the Bible. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And look at this and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Isn't that amazing? No pause, no big gap. I confessed all my transgressions to the Lord. Next one, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So once you've got all that stuff dredged up, once you've prayed, search me, the next prayer is, forgive me. David says, I acknowledge, I confess all my transgressions. I, I ask for forgiveness. I love how I am. This, this psalm actually begins Verse 1 says this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I really like that verse because it shows that the psalmist is a Bible reader. There are two clear references in that verse to things that happened earlier in the Bible. The first word, blessed, that's the first word of the Psalms. Psalm 1, blessed is the one who's reflecting on God, whose roots are planted in the gospel, in that stream of grace, so that all of life is lived out of that grace, not lived out of junk, lived out of the gospel. Blessed is that person. Notice, the Bible never says, blessed is the person who never, ever sins. There aren't any of those people. The Bible says, blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. Oh yeah, covered, that's the other word, the last word in the verse. That, that word takes us immediately back to Genesis chapter 3 and the first sin in the Bible. Our first ancestors, they sin, and immediately they try to remedy their own problem. They try to get fig leaves, as, you know, as disposable as they are, and they're covering the guilt, the shame of their sin with fig leaves. That's not going to work real well. By the time you come to the end of Genesis 3, God provides durable, permanent clothing. God covers their sin when their attempts at covering weren't working too well. So right at the beginning of Psalm 32, the psalmist says, blessed, just like Psalm 1, 
I want my sin covered by you, God, just like Genesis chapter 3. But you know, one of the real problems is we attempt to cover our own sins, don't we? I don't know about you. I'm an expert at covering my sin. I move people's attention to other areas that I'm more comfortable with. I can exaggerate. I can cast blame on somebody else, make other people look worse so I look better. I can kind of cheat the resume a little bit, talk about experiences in a way where I'm always the hero. Covering. I have a multitude of ways where I try to cover my sin. But what the psalmist is saying is, blessed is the person whose sin God has covered, whose transgressions are forgiven by God. Not my lousy attempts at self-help, but God's covering of my sin and God actually forgiving him. I love how the psalm ends. It talks about horses and mules. But they're horse people, mule people. Um, sometimes I need this instruction. Here's how the psalm ends. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. So here's kind of what's going on. After the confession part and the person's experiencing blessedness, after the forgiveness has come and covering happens, it's pretty easy now to begin to live life off of the pain avoidance model. You ever live this, right? Uh, when you get a little pain in your life, you kind of run to God. Uh, little things aren't going your way, you run to God. Otherwise, you got this thing handled, do it on your own. I mean, you get enough pain, you run back. But then we have this at the end. Don't be like the horse or the mule. They have no understanding. They must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. You know how mules work, right? If, if not, here's how they work. Here's a mule kind of walking down the road, right? Guy on his back. And he sees something to the left here. Some grass that just looks very tasty. So the mule starts winding over this way off the road. And so the owner of the mule, the rider of the mule, is kind of compassionate. So he gets him a gentle kick in his side and a slight little tug on the right. And he comes back this way, and, and the mule's kind of back on the center again. But boy, that grass is looking good over there on the left. So the mule kind of wanders over again. Well, this time, it's not a gentle kick in his side. The guy almost breaks two of his ribs and almost rips his teeth out as he's pulling them back. Well, eventually, the mule will stay on the road. But he's staying on the road to, to avoid pain. He's not staying on the road because he has the heart of his master in mind. It's pain avoidance on the outside. It's not loving on the inside. And I think the psalmist is saying, our following of God, our continuing what Jesus started, shouldn't be based on pain avoidance. It shouldn't be based on checking all the items. I'm doing all the things I think God wants. I'm staying away from all the things that God wants me to stay away from. I'm trying to be a good little boy, trying to be a good little girl, so God will give me all that I want. That's not loving God. That's not living with God's heart in mind. You're living like a mule. Don't live like a mule. You don't need kick in the ribs and get your teeth ripped out. Your heart is synced up with, with God, and you're living in ways that honor him. You're walking the center of the path because you love him, and you know that he loves you. Well, when we pray the prayer, forgive me, we know a fair bit more than the psalmist even knew. The psalmist was trusting God somehow to provide a covering my guess is he thought it was a little different than the leather clothes from Genesis 3. He knew blessedness was a little different than like a tree by the river, <clears throat> but it wasn't crystal clear to him yet. It should be crystal clear to us. 
The way God covers our sin is through the mission of Jesus. Jesus comes and takes our sin upon himself. He pays for it and gives us covering. He gives us forgiveness. He's the one that transacts the difference. When we put our faith in him and ask for forgiveness, all of his life, all of his righteousness is given to us and all of our sin is given to him. That's the big transaction. So when we say, forgive me, we're really saying, on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished for me and on the basis of you searching my heart and dredging up all that junk on the inside, I ask you to forgive me because of what Jesus has done for me. When you pray that prayer and mean those words, you become a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You see, there are only um, three ways to kind of think about your sin. Here's one. I'm too good to ask forgiveness. I don't think any of you are here. I'm too bad to ask forgiveness. No. Or I acknowledge my sin and Jesus gives forgiveness. That is what we're called to do in the Bible. So when you ask God, search me and then forgive me, it's on the basis of what Jesus has done. You're saying, God, now forgive me because of what Jesus has done. You don't have to bow your heads or close your eyes. Can you pray that prayer and mean what I just said? Forgive me for trying to cover my sin. Forgive me for all the stuff that you just brought to my attention. Forgive me because of what Jesus has done for me. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or for the thousandth time, you're a Christian. That's what the Bible calls us to do. Well, we're only half done our dangerous prayers, though. So we got search me and forgive me. Well, that's not the end. Here's another one. Change me. Change me. Uh, here's what David says in Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Lord, you change me on the inside. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Here's my guess. Every one of us in this room want to change a few things about ourselves. We can tell what a couple of those are by looking at you. But, but there are others that we don't know, right? You want to change, you know, I want to change the crease in my head. I want to change my weight, my height. I want to change my disposition. Some of you say, I'm too soft. I'm always giving out. I want to be tougher. Others say, no, 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 I'm too tough. I push people. I want to be more kind. Whatever, lots of stuff we want to change. How do we set about changing? Self-help. Dr. Phil and Amazon. <laughs> I will muster the courage. I will try harder. I will discipline myself and bring about change. How's that working for you? Here's my guess. You're finding out in real life, self-help doesn't help. Why do you think that industry continues to publish new books every year? If self-help really worked, don't you think the right book would have been published by now? They need newer books every year, newer versions, because self-help doesn't help. That's the reason. David knows the reason. Real change comes from the inside out. It doesn't come from the outside in. Self-help's all about outside in. Change a little bit thing on the outside. I'll change this on the outside, and maybe that'll change the inside. No, it doesn't. David says, create in me a pure heart. Change my inside, and if my insides get changed, my outsides will change. In fact, here's, a, here's another verse from the psalm that I, that I love. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, again, we're talking about things on the inside, right? Joy is on the inside. A willing spirit's on the inside. Right, here's the $100,000 question. I'm, you're, none of you are getting any money, by the way. Here's a $100,000 question. When did David lose the joy of his salvation? Now, here's the most common answer. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, that's when he lost the joy of his salvation. You see, there's a backstory to the psalm. The backstory to this psalm, adultery and murder. That'd make a good Sunday night movie, right? Adultery and murder. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And she gets pregnant in the encounter. Uriah, her husband, is one of David's best friends. He's not home because he's on a mission from David. David doesn't want to get caught, so rather than allowing God to cover, he tries to cover his own sin, right? We just talked about it. David tries to bring him home. Uriah comes home. David wines and dines him, sends him home, but Uriah has too much integrity, doesn't go home. What does David do? Come clean? Heck no. He has Uriah killed. David sets up the circumstances for Uriah to be killed. David commits adultery and murder in the same chapter, and this is his prayer afterward. So here's my question. When did David lose the joy of when he was sleeping with Bathsheba? He, no, 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 no. He had to have lost the joy of his salvation before that, or he never would have committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was looking for the joy that he should have found in God somewhere else. And when he gave up finding his joy in God, he was trying to find it in a sexual relationship with his neighbor. That is just the result of losing his joy. And that's our problem. When we begin to look for the joy and the sustenance of life, and when we begin to look for those things outside of finding our joy in the gospel, we're set up just like David to do all kinds of stuff. So when David says, change me, he knows that if God doesn't change him on the inside, there are going to be continual um, episodes and consequences on the outside. David may have committed adultery again and again, maybe murder again and again, but if God would change the inside, that would bring about a change on the outside. And so David says, change me on the inside. Then the outside will follow suit. You got the guts to pay it, play it, pray it? If I could only say it. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to say, search me, and you get a lot of junk in your head. Forgive me. But I'm guessing some of you are a little nervous to say, change me. You know what God wants to change, but you don't want to change that. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? God knows all that there is about you. You bring to him all of that. He gives you forgiveness through Jesus. And then says, now I'd like you to live like this in a way that's blessed and fulfilling. And we say, oh, I'm not sure I want to pray. Change me. You got the guts to pray? Change me. I want to find my joy in the gospel. And I'm asking you to create in me a different heart that values and loves my relationship with you more than anything else in the world. My career may be football, but I'm living for the gospel. My career may be an accountant or a manager or a CEO, but my life 
is in pursuing Jesus and continuing what he started. Change me. You don't have to bow your heads, close your eyes. Can you pray it? Change me. Well, we got one more, and some of you are thinking, well, I hope it's a short one. It is short. You kind of already know this one. It's send me. In fact, if you were in Souderton last week, we had like a whole message on this. Quakertown will have that message next week. But here's what Jesus prays. Remember, we looked at Jesus' prayer. Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctified myself. I set myself apart and committed, dedicated my life to them. Now I'm asking that they be committed, dedicated to me. So as you sent me, I'm now sending them. Can you pray that prayer? How did the Father send the Son? Jesus was in a familiar, comfortable environment, right? He's kind of in heaven. God says, Jesus, I got a mission for you. A mission of redemption and reconciliation. Jesus can't wait to go. He goes on the mission. And part of the mission, the the essence of the mission, is connection with people so they can have the transmission happen. And then he impacts, changes their lives. And then he prays, now, Lord, just like I did that, I went and helped them get connected to you. I'm now asking them to be used so others can be connected to me through them. And just like their lives were impacted by me, I want them to go and impact others with the same grace and forgiveness and love and service. As you sent me connection and impact, I'm sending them connection and impact. Can you pray that prayer? Can I paraphrase? Jesus, not my priorities, your priorities. Not my agenda, your agenda. Not my values, your values. Send me. Can you pray it? You don't have to bow your heads, close your eyes. God knows if you're sincere. Search me, forgive me. Change me, send me. If you prayed those prayers sincerely, your life will be different. You'll need time to think about it and reflect on it. And, you know, when you kind of wander away, you know, you need to kind of come back and remind yourself of the prayers and pray them again. And if we collectively pray those prayers, we are then ready and set for the next season of what God wants to do at Calvary Church. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your love, for your grace, for not only giving us the story, but showing us how to pray, giving us the words to pray. Lord, I pray that uh, we would have the guts, the courage, and the sanity to pray those prayers today, but not just today. Help us to be reminded and pray those prayers frequently, often. Remind us that uh, as we live life, a lot of junk gets put into play by us. Help us to acknowledge it, not pretend it's not there, but come to you for forgiveness rather than try to cover it ourselves, looking to you to change us from the inside out rather than mechanical behavioral change from the outside in. And help us to realize we have lots of different careers represented in the room, but we have one mission as a group to continue what Jesus started. We pray in his name, amen.